0: Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So welcome to another episode of HashiCast. It's a real pleasure to introduce today's guest because we've got Daniel Bryant from DataWire. So Daniel's had an incredibly interesting career and currently he's working as a product architect for DataWire and doing some really great things with Ambassador, which is their API gateway and which integrates with Envoy. He's written continuous delivery with Java for O'Reilly Books. He's one of the InfoQ editors. He's a renowned conference speaker and one of my all-time favorite people. So welcome, Daniel. I I could have filled the entire show with just an introduction of your achievement, but you can probably do a better job for me. So why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Nick. My mum would be proud. Yeah, if she
1: hears this podcast, she would love this intro. (laughs) But uh, yeah, thanks. Obviously, you and I have worked together uh, in the past, Nick, haven't we? And we we see each other on the the community trail, on the conference trail as well. So sort of a little bit of background about myself, as in I've been a software developer in some form or another for about 15 years now. Um, worked for the UK government my first gig and then I went to work with a bunch of startups. I kind of liked the fast feedback loop, if I'm honest, working with the startups. I worked for the UK government and, and as funny as it was, uh, 18 months I was there and didn't actually deploy anything to production. Uh, so that kind of sucked yeah. <laughs> and then went, went to a startup and literally pushed code and then the user was like complaining to me the next day. And I, though they were complaining. I loved it. I loved the fast feedback. I loved you know just learning everything I could. Like It was like, hey, we don't have someone to database do you want to learn how to do database stuff and i was like sure thing so um so i yeah, did a bunch of that for a while did a couple of cto gigs at some various startups Specto labs i know nick and i but uh, again sort of bumped into each other on there on the on the circuit there and i was doing some talks around that and then um yeah, I was a, sort of went back to consulting, did a bit of consulting with a company called Open Credo. So shout out to the Open Credo folks in London. They're HashiCorp partners, actually, and I, you guys probably bump into them quite a lot. But they're real good people. Still keep in contact with, with Nikki there. I was just chatting to her last week, actually. And after I left Open Credo, I fancied a new cha- challenge. I fancied getting back more into the product as opposed to the services. Yes, yeah, so I loved kind of doing the, the consulting and stuff. love solving problems, but I think my career will probably bounce between services and product. And at the moment, working with the awesome folks, they're based in Boston, although I'm based in the UK, and we are yeah trying to create some cool, interesting, and useful ultimately tools for Kubernetes because uh, we're thinking awesome tech that's kind of there now with Kubernetes and, and cloud and stuff, but we haven't fully, as an industry, I don't think we've fully caught up with kind of. Our practices on how to deploy and deliver code and value. So I'm loving the kind of the challenge. I'll be honest, it's a big challenge. I'm sure everyone working at HashiCorp, I'm sure everyone listening knows these challenges. Yeah, we've got amazing kind of stuff out there, but I'm really enjoying kind of um, the next stage of my career is like trying to actually help people who are developing code, you know, developing infra, infra tools and stuff, how helping them get the best out of what they're trying to do.
0: Now, Daniel, you're, um, you're a little bit modest because I didn't actually realize this until I saw a tweet but you're actually a doctor. You are Dr. Daniel Bright.
1: <laughs> yeah, I only use that on the when I'm when I'm flying. Someone told me put it on your on your uh, when you're buying a flight, yeah. You might get an upgrade. So the only time I actually use the doctor thing is when I'm buying flight tickets. But yeah, Nick, I did a PhD. Ah, 2004, 2005, I think I started that one. Uh, in defeasible logics, so I'm sure this is a very much a niche audience. Uh, and, it, and To be honest, what is that? Just... So basically uh, classic logics as in kind of you know, A implies B, that kind of stuff. With classic logics, you, it's, it's monotonically increasing. You can't almost unlearn. If you draw a conclusion, draw an inference, you can't contradict that easily. Whereas we all know in the real world, you learn new stuff that invalidates old stuff. And you also make um, kind of tentative guesses, the classic kind of joke with the uh, defeasible logic crowd. And trust me, this is the best the jokes get. But the classic joke is, you know, all birds fly. But what happens when you get a penguin? Penguin is a bird. Penguins don't fly. And that is a real trivial and contrived example. But there's a whole bunch of research going on. Trust me, like it was, uh, it was four years and part time I did the PhD. A whole bunch of research going on in developing algorithms for uh, modeling in particular sort of the legal and the medical side so I had a lot of work with um, oncology doctors a lot of work with cancer kind of um, patients genuinely fascinating and equally kind of you know respectful and, and scary at, at sometimes a whole bunch of work with lawyers and trying to capture the way they reasoned about things in computers yeah and like you the classic kind of um Expert systems are very much if then kind of rule based, whereas the real world, as we're seeing with the rises of ML and you know, AI and kind of stuff now with um, with deep learning. The Deep learning is one way of looking at these things. Back 10 years ago, we were looking more at the argumentation theory, it was called, defeasible logics, non-monotonic, non-monotonic logics. And to be honest, it was super interesting, but it was very niche. And one of the big things that, that kind of caused me to actually move on from that was it was very theoretical. The people I were working with were super into proving one thing, disproving another. And I was just like delivering kind of like value, kind of it's a core core like strand in my career. I just want to actually do real stuff that helps people rather than sort of try and you know sit around a dinner table and like try and solve the world's problems just by talking. I actually wanted to do stuff. So that's as much as I love my academic peers, I'm not trying to knock them. It just wasn't for me. I I wanted to, I I thoroughly enjoyed, learned a bunch of stuff, but I wanted to actually um, get out there. And when I started doing consultancy part-time, that totally led me down the, the coding route there.
0: That's fascinating and unfortunate because I'm uh, I'm not going to be able to ask you about this pain I've got in my leg right now. <laughs> but um, I get that joke, Nick, yeah. yeah look at this rash. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a tried and tested on it. We should probably get back to the tech. Um, I'm interested in your role at, at DataWire because, because obviously you were saying you're moving back into the, the sort of the product architecture side of things, but you're an incredible... Um, software architect and a, a systems architect how, how do, you, do you sort of how do those skills translate into product architecture and, and to creating great great product
1: yeah thanks for the compliment nick obviously like uh, you and i sort of cut our teeth on some of the microservice stuff together didn't we back at NotonHighStreet.com, uh, which is interesting so i think one of the key things and it's another thread in my career which i've kind of gradually learned uh, is empathy a bit of a catch all but being able to put yourself in someone else's place like in life i think this is just super valuable yeah but in particular with the kind of stuff i'm doing now working a lot with and um, with Richard and Rafe, who who run Datawire um i think the some of the value i add is being able to go hang on, that's not how I've done it in the field. And although it's kind of anecdotal, like some yeah. of the evidence, got to be careful with that. But I'm super lucky with the InfoQ stuff, super lucky with the conference stuff I do. I get to talk to people like from Netflix. I get to hang out with Agent Cockcroft. a bit of name dropping here. But and people like you guys, I get to hang out with super interesting people. And I learn a bunch of stuff. And I combine that with some of the things, like some of the things I've done right, some of the things I've done wrong, some of the teams I've led, some of the you know mistakes and, and good things we've done, mash it all up together. And then, kind of gives me a little bit of a of an edge in terms of thinking about will the product actually meet the needs so the whole data team is amazing heads up to them but like Richard for example is super good at business Richard looks at the business problems thinking you know, he's super techie but he, he focuses on the business Rafi looks at the kind of and the, and the technical team the engineering team look a whole bunch at kind of engineering top quality products and I'm kind of in the middle going like let's think about the user that's kind of all of us in data bring different things and i'm only mentioning three names there but i think that's kind of value i add is being able to go hey you know what we often think and i'm sure with the HashiCorp team bump into this but what you often think like in in your little bubble sometimes and as good as it is we think oh this is amazing and you kind of roll it out to a user and they go what are you thinking yeah Yeah? you know because in the real world when the rubber meets the road as they say it's it's a different experience yeah so that's probably my my sort of my most the thing I've noticed the most about having the experience of actually doing these things, coding these things, and making mistakes, <laughs> to be honest, you know, and learning along the way, yeah.
0: And that that kind of somewhat segues into into my next question around sort of service meshes because I, that that's obviously a big a big part of what you're doing with with Ambassador, and it's it's something I'm I'm going to hold my hands up in the air and say I was I was incredibly sceptical when I first heard of service meshes, and I think I had this conversation with you you before because yeah, you did. I kind of looked at it from a, a microservices practitioner's problem, and I'm like, well, I don't actually personally believe that implementing the, the kind of the, the, the classic sort of historic circuit breaker, load balancer, um, retryer, back-off type, type pattern was was really a problem when, you, mm-hmm. when you're when you building out systems. And, and actually, I quite like the control it gave me. And this was kind of one of my main main reasons why I'm like, well, hey, why do you need a service mesh? And from from that empathy perspective, I think one of the, the things that I came to terms with is that, you know, everybody's different and everybody has different needs. And actually service meshes have got a a very good sort of place in, in the market to to lift a lot of that load away from from developers and and um and I actually now believe that they're, that they're sort of essential for most systems. And, and I'll, I'll completely retract any <laughs> bad words I've said about them in the past. I'm, I'm happy to admit I was wrong. But, you know, what are your views on, on the service mesh? Because you, you've spoken about it as well. I watched a video you did it um, for, for O'Reilly, I think, a webinar on, on service meshes. What do you think the benefits are? Where do you think they maybe fall short or, you know, are they the silver bullet that everybody's looking for? Yeah, a
1: whole bunch of interesting questions there, Nick. So one of the things just to to unpack some of that is I definitely think um, many different people have different views on you know, what's platform, what's application, what's useful, these kind of things. So my experience working in startups, you're kind of you often you're happy to put everything in the code, in the application, and that works for you because you're going really fast. Whereas whether you're an enterprise, you kind of have separation of concerns, both from a skill point of view, but sometimes from a regulation point of view. So you want to have that this is platform, this is comms, this is application type type vibe. So I think there's definitely, I found it useful. Open Credo is really good in this respect, going in some big companies and realizing that stuff I thought, like I could never understand why people use DSBs sometimes. But then in some big organizations like, you know, financial organizations, it was essential. The sheer scale of the people working on it, you had to integrate at some point and you had to draw the line and say, this ESB is going to be our kind of gold standard of how we, you know, um, transform messages, how we route messages, all these kind of things, yeah. So I kind of, you know, it really gave me some empathy for understanding why all these different tools exist. And if you you sort of look at it from both angles that we saw when we were not on the high street, we were, primarily a Ruby shop at the time, doing a lot of Ruby on Rails. And we were bringing in some Java into the stack as well. And I remember distinctly, we, we loved the ideas with Hystrix, yeah? And we plugged in the Netflix OSS, Hystrix, in the Java stack. Shout out to Will, an awesome developer at OpenCredo, and we're not on the high street. And he like hooked it all up. we like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, this history of fallbacks, circuit breaking. love it. Then we wanted to do the same with the Ruby side. And we found a gem. We found like a Hystrix gem, but it was proper janky, <laughs> either yeah. Yeah. You know, someone by their own admission, they'd like literally written, wrote, written it rather uh, in the bedroom over a weekend, chuck the code up and they were like, you know, by the way, yeah, caveat mentor. And and we took it on and it was real hard to get it kind of up to the standard of the Java version of the Hystrix. So that for me, and we also had the same issue with service discovery. Uh, that was when I first bumped into Dedoar actually with Baker Street, but we also looked at Airbnb Smart Stack and, and Nginx, and a whole bunch of tools. And I suddenly realized that there's a whole bunch of like communication, kind of cross-cutting concerns which when you start implementing them in libraries unless you were a shop like Netflix that really went all in on the JVM um, or had a massive engineering team that allowed you to kind of create JVM sidecasts for other uh, language uh, stacks to use it was actually really hard to get this stuff right do you know what I mean you, you had to reimplement the same things in many different languages and, and different libraries and we were looking at bringing in JavaScript and Go and Swift even I think you were kind of interested weren't you and the, the thought kind of I've done a few other gigs at OpenGredo. The the thought of that doing sort of maintaining the libraries filled me with dread a little bit in terms of if we we change the service discovery mechanism in the Java world, probably going to have to update the Go version and so forth. So that's why I think the service meshes, you know, they they kind of feel like the missing piece from the Kubernetes and orchestrator puzzle. Yeah. A bunch of work on Mesos, a bunch of work with um, Kubernetes and ECS, fantastic tools for, deploying onto ephemeral hardware stuff that dies all the time and you know that kind of stuff and uh, kubernetes will reschedule your pods And nomad same kind of deal yeah all these tools are fantastic at that but they kind of left the communication bit as an exercise for the reader do you know what i mean you rocked up to kubernetes and you're like oh this deployment stuff's amazing and you start trying to do canary rollouts a bit a bit hard sometimes you start trying to do um you know service discovery the dns is good enough, but doesn't always kind of, you know, get where you want. If you want to start putting security policies in, you, you're kind of out of luck in some ways. Yeah. So I do feel what well, I looked at, um, what was it, Tigero were doing a bunch of stuff and Weave obviously doing a bunch of stuff with Calico and, and things like that and WeaveNet. That was interesting, but again, it was pretty low level. So I think the service mesh has come in sort of almost above that proper, you know, layer three networking thing and are complementing layer four upwards, like layer four, five, six, seven, uh, and really kind of yeah, centralizing a bunch of cross-cutting concerns in a platform level, you know, so it's it's, it's language agnostic if that makes sense. And I've used it in a bunch of gigs, and it's been very. Um, once you get your head around it, it's been very useful.
0: I mean, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm a convert, but d- does it mean that you, you sort of do lose control as a as a sort of a, a service developer? I'm not going to say an application developer, but a, a service developer, because one of my my key things that I, I think is incredibly important is, is designing for failure, especially in a microservice environment, because they they fail all of the time. They're, they're robust, but but independent components <laughs> fail all of the time. And, and if you don't get the the sort of that that plumbing correct, then you can end up with a complete system failure. But if I'm putting all of this logic into the service mesh and the service mesh is kind of handling my 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 retries can i control that for example service a to service b has a different retry and back off than service d to service b is is that possible or do you have to have kind of like a one fits all solution
1: yeah it comes back to something you mentioned just a minute ago Nagashi, which i didn't really address and it's the silver bullet thing isn't it i mean we Constantly search silver bullets and even back, you know, Fred Brooks, Mythical Man Month said there is no silver bullets, which I'm sure all of us uh, listening can, can relate to as well. And I think, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. So and I think for me, one of the things I've struggled a bit with this, to be honest, I def- there's some things that are application concerns and the service mesh can almost take them away from you. You know, it makes it easier to kind of get on with some of these things, you know, it rather than having nothing like a service mesh clearly gives you often sort of service discovery and it gives you some fault tolerance and stuff that I'd rather have than not have, if that makes sense. But I, but I, to your point, exactly, as in, particularly as an engineer, particularly if I'm doing a startup where I'm, you know, product market fit, I'm trying to go as fast as possible. I kind of want everything under my control. Yeah. And the service mesh can take some of that away. And the person I look to in this space is Christian Poster. I'm sure I mentioned Christian's name many times on this call. Because like Christian's just awesome, I'm super lucky to meet him this year and, and last year actually, and um, we've had a bunch of interesting chats. And just recently, he put out this awesome blog bo- uh, blog post. It was about um, application safety and correctness, saying a service mesh can't do everything. Yeah, mm. and basically, Christian just nailed it. Yeah, and he's one of those people, a bit like a Matt Klein or you know, or even Mitchell and Armand. So they kind of they can just they can take something we we're all thinking and put it in a really consumable package yeah and when i read like christian stuff like he's basically the way he split it up i think it was uh, application integration and application networking yeah. and he said like the integration stuff is like an app level concern like you and i as developers all of us here as developers and the application networking is more of a platform thing now the service mesh is awesome at the application uh, networking and platform level but you want to use other tools i think christian's a big fan of um what is it it's a couple of old java tools like uh, apache camel Apache camel he's a big fan of camel and I, i've used that as well and that one kind of can you can package up and do some funky application level uh things as well so i, I totally i hear nick i think it's a really good shout out to, to think about these things one thing i did get from uh, a chat with matt klein actually at qcon new york is he he sort of i think it like sort of nicely gels in with some of the hash got the day of hash stuff i've bumped into is that he was using envoy at Lyft, and the team at Lyft were using envoy to provide sensible defaults yeah. yeah so like in concurrency and throughput and safety and i sort of i've bumped into some of that with sentinel for example in some of the policy work i know you're all doing at hash and i think having these kind of like low level sensible defaults but then having the freedom and responsibility to override them like one level up is where it's at yeah and it's not for every development team you've got to be a bit aware and a bit responsible for these things but i, I definitely think it's Worth calling out, and then making the making the decision cons- consciously. Are we gonna, you know, put some app level integrations in? Are we gonna rely one hundred percent on the platform?
0: Yeah, I think maybe as well. When I look at things, I'm maybe overrating the the need for too much configuration. I think sometimes things work fine, and you can possibly over over evaluate things. But but I think certainly the, the the key thing is the fact that if you can just throw something with an annotation and automatically not have to worry about any of the things like load balancing and, and service discovery, That that in, is an incredible movement for, for a, a team to be able to, to work fast and to not have to kind of Concentrate on those things, and then concentrate on features which deliver value. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He,
1: well, one thing I just chuck in there is—it's always worth thinking about mechanical sympathy. So, as in, if you do get a bit divorced, because it's, it's super powerful to be able to chuck in an annotation. But as a developer, sometimes I lose touch with the platform. So, I, I just want to chuck in there just as a thinking point for the listeners. Something I constantly remind myself of is every time a tool gives me like an, a good abstraction or kind of you know solve some problems for me, I still want to know about the problems so I can code appropriately. Does that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, there's something I, you know, I, my mentors were going kind to of taught me over the year is always look one level deeper. If you're operating as an architect, you've got to be able to code. If you're coding, you've got to understand the infrastructure to some degree. Yeah, maybe not write it, create it, but understand it. And I do wonder sometimes whether service meshes might hide some of the kind of responsibilities from developers. Not seeing it too much yet, but it's a potential. I think.
0: I think one of the things that I I come across is is around observability, and I think certainly there's a in in some areas there's maybe a mistaken belief that the service mesh can take away all of your observability woes and needs where where actually from 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 experience and well from the project that we worked on actually having mm. observability deep 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 down into the code is really mm, where yeah. it helps to to be able to do your diagnostics when when you're either load testing performance testing or if you're dealing with an outage and Sort of the certainly the, the level that you get with the mesh, the, the fact that you you have this intercommunication, you can see number of calls, time of call, and stuff like that, it's incredible and it's incredibly valuable. But how does how does the service mesh take that further? So is it how do you sort of build up that big picture which which is inclusive of the the sort of the service-to-service communication, but also being able to include very sort of granular um, service level metrics, such as how long it took to execute a a routine or a function or a loop, um, which might be doing some sort of calculation or just a database call. How do you you kind of concatenate all of that together and present it in a, a usable way? Yeah, great question, Nick. And it's a definite, Super hard question, isn't it? To be honest,
1: a super hard answer. And I think there's a bunch of people doing very interesting work in this space, but a shameless plug, I did write a bunch of this stuff in my book. <laughs> as in, <laughs> not not just plugging the book, but it really made me understand how much of a challenge it is. Like with the chapter of the book just grew and grew and grew, yeah? As I was kind of writing about all this stuff. Um, so I, again, come back. I think if you haven't got anything, adding a service mesh kind of gives you a default view. Yeah, kind of yeah. top line metrics, are you getting 500s what's the latency what's the throughput for example of, of your service so that's good but you also do need to instrument your applications you're right so in the java world we have like um uh, uh, code Health metrics and spring's got some and i think go's got kind of equivalent um, versions of these so i often added kind of semantically relevant data points. So, you know, even sometimes business data points, to be honest, but even things like you mentioned it, like, you know, you can, um, it's super easy actually in the Java world with Code with CodeHale metrics, you put an annotation on on your method and it literally times the entry and the exit to the to the method. And you can then kick that up to, you know, um, Prometheus or, or something else as well. But I definitely think, you know, two people I'll shout out here that I've learned a lot from uh, on the sort of usual suspects, honest, like Cindy Shidharan does amazing work, Copy Construct on Twitter and Medium yeah. and Charity, Charity Mages Mipsy Tipsy. Yeah. Those two are really doing some amazing thought leadering and, and just charity in particular with honeycomb a super interesting kind of product she's coming up with and i i definitely find i was literally chatting with richard uh, uh earlier on today about this and we're seeing there's kind of two modes of operation there is the observability piece the monitoring piece understanding global level what's going on at your systems understanding kind of service to service comms then there's a kind of understanding what's going on from a business perspective you know is is the actual user kind of um getting value are they impeded in any way and then like what i think charity in particular talks a lot about is the kind of debugging and she calls that high cardinality debugging the ability to dial into a particular user maybe a high value user you know Hashicorp premier customer for example you want to be able to see if like if you kind of your um 99th percentile you know you want to see if they're in that 1% 1% for example like you just say oh, 1% of my traffic is getting bad bad results who cares but if that 1% is like exclusively all of your top priority customer that's a real big problem yeah so I've been chatting a lot to to charity also the LightStep team Ben Sigelman doing amazing work yeah, it's a total area of kind of, of I think innovation people are chucking in some machine learning uh, I think genuinely good you often see a bit of blockchain a bit of machine learning in random places but I think in this place it's actually quite an interesting space to, to sort of talk about insight and how you can as a developer when something is going wrong I really would value someone or something to point me in the direction of where it's going wrong yeah and I think from what I, from my friends at Google and so forth and conference presentations I've seen kind of Google with their SRA teams have really worked on this kind of thing like sort of you know kind of heuristics and maxims of, of the systems will guide you to where the problem is. I think the rest of us out in the in the real world, so to speak, or not the real world, but the world outside of Google <laughs> and Netflix and stuff, we we struggle with this. So people like Charity, like um, Cindy, are really kind of helping us, I think, think about this, um, yeah, the kind of observability, understandability, and debuggability. Are, they're really like three key things, I think, as, a, as an engineer. Yeah,
2: yeah, I remember looking into all of this when we were doing microservices in my previous job at Hootsuite, uh, our like you know dream was to have tracing all the way from the browser. So, like from the browser, you can actually see the traces for each API call. and we had um you know multiple microservices doing different things. and, and we were a polyglot organization, so we were running GoLang, uh, Scala microservices, uh, Python microservices, and it was, like, it was like, okay, so we need to instrument each of these microservices. Then we need to pass these headers all the way through from the browser all the way down the stack, and it was a, you know, it was a big, you know, big project and when we proposed it, you know, and and kind of, you know, had some pros and cons written down, saying that if we were to invest in this, like, how, like, how long will it take? Is it even useful? And I think we tried it for a subset of of our microservice calls, and e- even then we saw so much benefit that come out of this kind of system. But yeah, the the organization has to be on you know with this, and, and the organization should understand the, the the pros and cons of this, and 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 actually invest in this in order to make this a reality. And I think that to me is still, I think the human factor is still like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's not, it's not an easy buy-in to kind of get from the engineering teams, right? Like, you know, this yeah, is what yeah, we're yeah, going to yeah. give you versus, you know.
1: It's something I struggle with. And, and it's come, I was actually listening recently to um, Beyond the Phoenix Project by Gene Kim and, and John Willis. And if you have bumped into it, it's an awesome audio book that builds on the Phoenix Project stuff. And they, again, they're the, the couple of those people that really crystallized thoughts I've been having for a long time is like, if I was to work in or if we, if we were to work in like a uh, chair manufacturing plant, you could see the trees coming in one end, the wood. Yeah. And you could see the chairs popping out the other and you can see the broken chairs and you can see it's taking a long time to put the back on the chair. But like in software, you can't see any of that. <clears throat> and then trying to argue. know this observability will be really valuable trying to argue that to someone who's perhaps more of a business person than an IT person there's no you know obvious analogy we can use here. we can't point to the trees there's no trees in in software yeah so I, I this is something as a consultant I really struggle with Mishra like there was and it's you have to be I think it's both sides of the argument because often as a tech person we don't look at the kind of roi yeah or the risk and as a consultant as a cto it's something i got a bit burned with and i learned my lessons yeah like when i was responsible for the profit and loss i really saw i had exactly that conversation like do i really need this debugging stuff can i afford it but but it's you know we need to think holistically about this stuff and come up with better i think analogies and stuff to help the the not so it uh, savvy Mm -hmm. people because you know we we all can't be IT experts we need to help them make these decisions don't we which is it's really hard. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm. I'm glad. Like now, your work at Datawire, I feel like you're much more aligned with like directly solving some of these problems. And I'm. I'm pretty happy that you know Datawire is like actually doing all the products that I've used. So I. I remember like a year ago, I used Ambassador, and we were evaluating API gateways uh, in my previous company, and we had this like really old API gateway written in Java. I'm not gonna name the, the company's <laughs> name that that we were <laughs> we were using for oh, the API. Yeah.
0: Gateway.
2: <laughs> and, and and then we were we were at the same time transitioning from Mesos to Kubernetes, and we were looking mm-hmm. into ingress controllers, and and Envoy was new, and I think um, you know we were using we were trying out Envoy, and and then we we found like this like open source project like out of nowhere, it's like oh Ambassador, is this is like an API gateway on top of Envoy. I was like oh, this is exactly what we're looking for <laughs> for a future API gateway platform. So. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Ambassador is and what problems does it solve?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So that story is one I bump into nearly every day, Mishra. To be honest, like, so fundamentally, uh, Ambassador builds on Envoy. It's written in Python and Envoy at the core, and um, but we kind of sprinkled some magic sauce kind of over the top. If so that's a good analogy, but to make it easier to use because Envoy is super powerful. But um, it's also quite challenging to configure. Sometimes lots of config files going in. Um, you know, now they've kind of got all the APIs a bit more locked in. It's a bit bit more straightforward. But one of the core things people find when they go to Kubernetes, either they're doing a migration or they're doing some greenfield work. Like one of the first things you want to do is get stuff into your cluster, get traffic ingress into your cluster. And it's actually not as straightforward as you might think. Yes, so I don't know if you've played around with the ingress uh, like options in Kubernetes, yeah. and they were a great first start. But some of the discussions around them have kind of stalled, and now Ingress is a little bit wanting compared with, say, the low balancer on, on the services. Yeah. Um, and we saw a bunch, you know, the default people often go to is using Nginx, because everyone knows and loves Nginx, as, as do I. Used it many times. We used it not on the high street with, with Nick. but. Nginx isn't very cloud native, at least not at the moment. And actually I'll caveat now, by probably all the things I'm about to mention, depending on when this podcast is published, it probably would have all changed. Yeah. (laughs) Nginx will be super Kubernetes, you know, native and stuff. But at the moment, it's kind of not. Yeah. As in much I love Nginx, you've got to learn the syntax of the config files. And if you're a developer, you know, you're having to learn Kubernetes already. You're having to learn YAML perhaps and learn Kubernetes. To learn something else is just more and more stuff. So we deliberately said, or I say we, it was before I actually joined DataWire. So hat tip to Flynn. Flynn is actually sort of leading the charge as a en- lead engineer on ambassador. He sat down with the rest of the team and said, how can we make Envoy easy for people that are comfortable with Kubernetes? Yeah. And ultimately now it's gone to using annotations. So you've got your standard service. You want to expose it via a route, you know, uh, an endpoint or whatever. And And you literally write an annotation in Kubernetes and you can do kind of the standard stuff you'd see on any gateway really, you map a route to a service, Mm -hmm. wildcards, all these kind of good things. Um, And it fundamentally is is, is there to make people's lives easier. We're looking at things like CRDs, so there's been a bit of work by the Admiralty uh, team uh, actually doing a CRD, which is making it even more Kubernetes native, how you define these these routes and things. Um, And we've also got a bunch of stuff like because we're building on Envoy, pretty much we, you know, you can actually sort of access the Envoy effectively, but we're, we often put like a nicer abstraction on top. We've got um, integrations to do, say, rate limiting. So like um, there's a gRPC interface that Envoy expects, and you can create any uh, sort of a service in any um, language, long as it int, int, uh, long as it builds on the gRPC interface and you can do things like rate limiting. So I've got a couple of examples in my Medium account of where I built a Java rate limiting service that you can kind of all customization or various um, sort of properties based on the request and things. Same kind of deal with auth. So um, like the the Kubernetes like Ingress is a bit sort of funny with auth. Uh, So Istio have totally recognized this problem. Istio have got gateways now. They're they're doing some fantastic work around the gateways kind of abstraction in in, in their service mesh. But even I don't think they support authentication yet. So um, there's a gRPC interface again with Envoy that we expose in Ambassador. So you can write your own auth plugin. We've got like a Pro version, where we actually kind of will code the integration for you, and you can kind of integrate with your, you know, Active Directory or, or whatever you want to do. So we're trying to kind of we're trying to that's something cliched in some ways like bring envoy to the masses yeah because it's totally cliche and matt klein has already brought envoy to the masses so i'm not i'm you know i wouldn't dare kind of like get in the same ring with matt klein he dude, is another level above but we wanted to make it easier for people to to get all the awesome benefits from, from what they're doing and you know lift like use it on the edge as well as on all their you know east west traffic all their service mesh traffic so we were like the first problem is often ingress let's help people get that one done
2: yeah, I think that that sounds really interesting because I I think this morning we were just uh, Mitchell and I were just talking about uh, we, so we have a Kubernetes uh, internal group that we kind of discuss Kubernetes stuff and we were talking about uh, CRDs and how like you know you can use RBAC, uh on top of CRDs to do some really cool stuff and I think one of the major benefits why people you know went from you know using let's say config maps or like something else to do uh, to do, you know, storing, storing all that information to like using CRDs is our back. And I feel like that, that's super interesting to me that like slowly we have kind of come to a consensus, especially yeah. I, I think yeah. ingress ingress is a great example. What you mentioned is like it was I felt that, you know, on a control plane wise, like it was trying to do a lot of things for a lot of different proxies.
1: Yeah, there you go. Perfect.
2: It, it became really difficult to kind of write these configurations. It's like, oh, like this has to work across every every data plane. Yeah. And it becomes so difficult, I feel. And I think, yeah, either, either way, I think it's still, I think Ingress is still useful. And, you know, I think I'm sure there's a grand plan for like what Ingress will be. Uh, but I'm glad like there's products like Ambassador and it's all open source. You can use it. And I think we used it for a substantial amount of time.
1: Yeah, perfectly memory. said. Uh, because, uh, definitely, like I think one of the challenges with a project like Kubernetes is you want to welcome everyone with their different solutions but if you're not careful you kind of fall back to the lowest common denominator and i've definitely seen that with the ingress everyone's like we want it super configurable but we want it generic and that's hard it's a genuinely hard problem to solve the kubernetes community is fantastic there probably isn't a kind of stronger community but there's only you you have to draw the line somewhere i guess and and that's what we've tried to do with ambassador we can because we're kind of outside of you know working very closely with kubernetes but outside we can kind of draw the line and say hey here's our opinionated version Mm -hmm. you know and it's open source as you rightly said get ambassador.io is the website to pop along to people can read more about it and download it and just try it out if it doesn't work for you totally cool but a lot mm-hmm. of people we find it's, it's useful for
2: yeah we'll drop the link down in the description for the listeners and also drop some of your blog posts from medium i think you mentioned two of That'd them awesome. that, that talk about java and things yeah, like that thank you. that would be super useful i always love reading them so uh you know just might as, well share, <laughs> might as well share that with
1: everyone <laughs> Nice one.
2: Um, so one other question i had around ambassador was the the integration or even like, you know, the interplay between service meshes, um, you know, and ambassador. So how does that work? So like, do you have to have a service mesh in order to use ambassador or do you just need envoy and then maybe a control plane or a controller that, you know, uh, that ambassador provides and that's all, that's all you need to use it.
1: Yeah. So good question. So then I th- actually, I was in Dublin last week doing a talk and I bumped into this question a couple times after, after the meetup. Um, so. Ambassador standalone. So if you're just looking to get traffic into your um, into your network, Ambassador will, will sort you out completely. And often people they start say with a migration with like a monolith and like like we did not on High Street. You, you kind of chip a bit of the monolith off. You create a couple of services and your service kind of call stack is often quite shallow. So Ambassador is perfect there because you can literally you know as you would any other ingress gateway, you can route traffic accordingly um, to those shallow services and and your, and your monolith still. Um, then, when you kind of grow in complexity, often you, you might want to look at a service mesh. My, my general rule of thumb is, if you got less than say ten or twenty services, a, a service mesh might add overhead that it's not quite you know you don't get your return on it. But that's a an anecdotal thing. Still working around this kind of stuff. But a bunch of people, if you check our you know our docs out, a bunch of people have integrated uh, Istio with um, Ambassador, for example. The control planes are still separate, so we have like the annotations on the Kubernetes services doing all the routes the ingress and we have like a um, ambassador admin uh, uh, service or pod and pods deployments that kind of do all the magic there as a control plane and you still need to run Istio with all its you know mixer and pilot and everything so you do have two control planes and you need the the Istio routing is obviously done differently with them they have like a separate config file but we've had a bunch of people do um, mutual uh, uh, TLS for example so end-to-end kind of ambassador does the TLS termination then it will Pass on to Istio, and Istio does mutual TLS uh, internally. I know we're looking at doing stuff with Console Connect. Like I, as soon as I bumped into Console Connect, reached out <laughs> to Nick, and I was like, "This is super interesting." Uh, the, the Envoy thing for us is kind of really interesting because we're we're doing a lot of stuff with Envoy, so we're kind of waiting to see what's what's going on around the Envoy work there. But I think you know, regardless of what mesh you choose, I think there's going to be meshes for almost different use cases. I think the mutual TLS stuff that Console Connect is focusing on is a primary use case for a lot of enterprises. So the SMEs I'm seeing their primary use case with their service meshes is observability, and there's a couple other probably use cases. So you might choose your mesh depending on what you you value the most. And um, but we as an ambassador, we would look to integrate with all of them. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's going to be interesting. The biggest challenges I think around this stuff is the control planes. Yeah, you know, as a developer, I'm having to learn lots of stuff all the time, I'm having to learn how Istio works, Ambassador works, Kubernetes. So I think as an industry, we need to come up with a bit of a better approach to some of that stuff but we're totally up for you know we, we like to say we manage the north south traffic the traffic coming in and out of your cluster but service meshes are where it's at for the east west or cross data center kind of traffic
2: okay that, that that makes complete sense uh yeah i think it's good you mentioned about like what our goal is to write software applications that we write for you know for our business organizations right like it's it's not to you know Learn eight different technologies and like <laughs> yes. try to make them into play. I think that's. I think that's that's also like you know important. But I feel like the goal in the in the end was to actually write good code and. And hopefully that code brings in certain amount of revenue.
1: <laughs> to the I mean, that's I saw actually Gareth Rushgrove today tweeting about. Like, he's he's doing the reviews for KubeCon, I think it was, and right. he was like, "If you're going to pitch me a service mesh solution, tell me how this adds value." Like, that was his. There was a really pithy tweet. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like exactly what you said, Richard. Like, y- the primary goal of all of us, we want to do cool tech, and we want to work with cool people. But bottom line is, we are delivering some form of value, aren't we? Like to, to users, and we uh, I think as an engineer, I forget that. I'm sure we all do. Yeah, <laughs> but like a, a reminder every so often. That that hey you're actually here to, to like help the users um kind of focuses your attention then on the actual business business code.
2: Yeah I think talking about like writing and like kind of testing software out and 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 development environments around like this new technology, I, I really struggled with like the initial phase of my my learning when I got into the 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 Kubernetes world is just that you know I think Minikube was still a new project that you could use mm-hmm. to kind of get a local Minikube cluster running. And I felt like you know, we had these like really big uh, Kubernetes clusters, both like in development environment and a staging environment and like a production environment. Like how do I make, you know, make it like things like integration tests work mm. uh, locally and like, you know, unit testing and things like that. I think it was really difficult for us to kind of figure out like a consistent way to do it. And we came up with our own kind of way. And, and then I remember like this project that again, you know, DataWire was one of the people behind yeah. it, no, no surprise, uh, called, called telepresence, and I think yeah. like initially when it came out, and and I remember like it was on Hacker News, I think it was like front page or something. And it's so, always like, good. It's always nice uh, seeing <laughs> looking through all the comments. Um, it was awesome because I think like it kind of solved our problem at that time, and we didn't have to do uh, we didn't have to do like eight different things to, to make you know make. Uh, uh, let's say like hijacking DNS and that stuff that we're already doing like in in the background to hack this, make this integration testing work, uh, you know, and, and this, 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 this tool actually did it in a more, like a very consistent way. So why, why, my question was more around like, why would you, uh, like, how did you find this problem? And like, how did you go about solving it? in in terms of like using like, let's say telepresence is a good example, but like, what do you see in in the wild like in terms of the kubernetes community or like you know let's say the uh, the cloud native community like what where where are these problems and how do you go about finding them how you go about solving them
1: yeah yeah so if i remember my data wire history correctly it was itamar it has actually moved on to do some other stuff now he followed his dreams looking after um or looking at uh, some socially responsible companies doing some software development there but he was basically brainstorming. He was like, one of the problems he constantly bumped into as a developer, uh, he was doing sort of like working on bigger projects, you know, in Kubernetes or whatever, and he couldn't spin them up on his local machine. So he was like, how do I do locally develop a service but interact with all these services that I can only run on a remote cluster. Yeah, I think that's, if I got my history right, I think that was a kind of general general sort of vibe. And it basically went from there and telepresence is actually a CNCF project now. So it's stewarded oh, nice. by DataWire, but it's a CNCF kind of a Cloud Native Computing Foundation hosted project, which is awesome. Got a lot of great benefits from them in terms of building the community. But fundamentally telepresence allows you to sort of two way proxy to a remote cluster. And the way I kind of crudely look at it because I don't know, I've used it a bunch, um, is I can basically put my laptop in a remote cluster. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the joke is it's kind of cheaper than visiting a data center. Yeah, I don't have to visit the, you know, GK. I, I spin up my GKE cluster. I'm a big fan of using a GKE and like ephemeral nodes. So, you know, it don't yeah. cost, doesn't cost that much. And I spin up all my kind of config or whatever. And often because I do a lot of Java stuff, Java much as I love Java, like it's often quite thirsty on the RAM. So you can't run it, even though I've got a 16 gig Mac, yeah, I can't run it all, all my services on my, on my Mac. So I spin up everything in GKE on ephemeral nodes, and then I, I telepresence into the cluster. And there's a nice like, command line flag you can do, swap deployment, and I can literally swap the deployment that's running remotely to my local machine. And I can then debug, like I often using IntelliJ, for example, in the Java world. I can um, poke some traffic in through Ambassador, say, like in the real real world, like the actual sort of remote cluster, poke some traffic in, and I can set some debug points on my on my swapped deployment. So the basically the telepresence will see there's some traffic due for my service, it will route the traffic to my local machine. I do my debugging, as long as the time acts are set rightly, I can then send the traffic back into the cluster and it will do its thing. So there's a whole bunch of interesting use cases there. You can, you know, I wouldn't recommend it for like debugging live traffic per se. Although we are looking at that kind of thing, like using funky things with headers, you can kind of shadow and canary and reroute reroute traffic. But um, my primary use case is when I'm say messing around with yeah, big uh, local, a uh, big. Local kind of development, local remote development environment, or a staging cluster. And to, to the sort to the of conversation we had earlier on is when stuff's going wrong and you really need to get in there and actually look under the hood and figure out what is broken. Telepresence is amazing. You know, you can run all your tools locally as if you were in the cluster. So I'm often digging and NS lookup and all this kind of checking all the DNS is done right. And then I'm like literally debugging using all the tools as a Java developer. I love locally, um, but I'm kind of primarily testing against their remote kind of invocation, which is been routed via my my laptop. So I think it you know it's one of those things like definitely at Datawire and other companies I worked at as well, but Detawire are really good at this is they kind of well we've kind of figured out the common problems. Do you know what I mean as in like by actually delivering like working with customers, um, you know, going like and seeing their problems, you soon identify the pain points. And most of those pain points, when you've seen a few different customers, you you spot the commonality. Do you know what I mean? We like Rafe shout out to Rafi at Datawire, done a bunch of consulting gigs and he was like, we're seeing this at every gig. We should probably create a tool to overcome the issue. I'm pretty sure it's the same with HashiCorp, you know, like Mitchell and Armand. I remember when I first used Vagrant, for example, I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. And, and, you know, Mitchell's pretty much said, like, I was scratching my own itch. Yeah, like I had this problem. I created a tool. So we've kind of, I guess, inadvertently sort of followed in his footsteps in that one.
2: Thanks, Daniel. This is, this is actually a very interesting discussion. And I think my, you know, well, I, I love asking this to all our guests. And I think one of our last questions is, is that where do you see... The tech industry actually, you know, going and like, you know, this is like, it's one of those questions. super subjective. Uh, you know, you know, we get variety of answers and sometimes you what, don't. don't.
0: What Misha really wants to know is, are robots going to take our jobs? Yeah, right. yeah. okay, will I'll I, tell you will I still
2: get paid is what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, it's, like a, it's a multi-level
1: question mission to be fair because like you can look like so i, I work with InfoQ, and we like our kind of emerging trends are things like blockchain quantum and augmented reality but that, they're super interesting but i think for most of people listening and probably ourselves like i think in the actual um development space i think serverless is super interesting yeah as in i, I my view is that serverless is going to coexist with containers for a while some people are saying you know serverless is the only way to do things and i and they're very clever people and i respect them a lot and i Get where they're coming from but i also can see the benefits of you know where we're kind of at in terms of containers and stuff so i i think like kubernetes being the kind of um default fabric, if you like, the kind of default platform fabric, things like Knative being built on top and a bunch of the, you know, I'm sure HashiCorp are doing lots of super secret projects, which uh, we'll get to see in a few months time. I think it's a very interesting space around sort of the, the serverless stuff and directly related to that, something we've already touched on today is the control plane. Yeah. Me as a developer, you guys, as, you know, every, all the folks listening at home as developers, we we need to be able to understand what's going on and, and then interact appropriately and i think as you know something again we're seeing at Datawire as the, the the kind of the infrastructures that we've got access to is incredible yeah cloud containers you know terraform stuff i couldn't have dreamed of, kind of you know, a few years ago when i was developing code but we're almost struggling to keep up with this in the development principle point of view how do I actually use all this stuff how do I test it how do I deploy it And these kind of things so I think the control plane is like a, and I'm looking at Matt Klein quite a bit with this stuff Matt's talked about this kind of stuff a lot I think um, building effective control planes for observability and, and understandability and how we deploy and manage container stuff and, and serverless stuff is 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 where it's at, and that's kind of why I joined Datawire. They sort of they were making bets on on that being a very interesting area of development, yeah. And that's kind of you know, um, kind of where we're really looking to add a lot of value on on how you actually use all these things to deliver cool stuff.
2: Right. I, I really don't want you to let, you know, to go without like kind of giving you an opportunity to plug your new book, which is coming out pretty uh,
1: <laughs> probably the same time this podcast comes out. I think.
2: Could you tell us a little bit more about your new book?
1: Yeah. So uh, the book will be out, and. Um, uh, End of October, so I like to joke it's a perfect holiday gift. Yeah, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever you celebrate, I think is a perfect, you know, perfect kind of gift. But um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Michelle and Nick, to shout out the book. So it's with a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, uh, Abraham Marin Perez. Abraham's joined me. He joined me sort of midway. He's done a fantastic job on, on really helping with uh, like so many things. So both of us have written the book. Um, it is a sort of one stop shop, or it aims to be a one stop shop for a Java developer. Be you uh, fresh out of college, or be you kind of a seasoned Java developer, and um, looking to embrace the kind of modern ways of working. Yeah, something that both Abraham and I bumped into is is kind of what we've talked about today, working with cloud, working with containers, working with maybe not service meshes, we haven't covered that too much, but definitely cloud and containers uh, and the demands of users these days, you know, the fast feedback loops required. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we've kind of got some best practices or some good practices around that. And just in my um, consulting experience, they're not always, well shared out, you know, that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed as the kind of, you know, the quote goes. And and what we've tried to do in the book is capture our learnings and how, you know, stuff from, not, I've shouted out, not on the high street, actually I've shouted you yeah, out, Nick We we learned a bunch of stuff together there. Abraham's done a bunch of work with Eagle Experts, same kind of thing. We've tried to package it all up and provide a guideline for, you know, understanding all the stages of continuous delivery how you develop things locally. So telepresence, again, gets a shout out and these kind of things. Um, how you do testing, even simple things like how you manage your, your Git workflow. I've definitely bumped in People are fresh out of college haven't done much um, version control, for example. So we've tried to put like a, a sort of starter chapter there for people that are new to all these kind of professional ways of developing software, yeah? Stuff that we all had to learn the hard way as we kind of, got into these things. So there's a whole bunch of um, GitHub uh, examples coming along through, I'm still writing some of those. So we are using Packer, Vagrant, Terraform, be pleased to hear, for our demos. Bunch of Kubernetes stuff, bunch of ECS, uh, AKS, I think, as well, and some other things. Um, So we've tried to make the book kind of concrete, but with plenty of conceptual stuff, high level stuff. And then the examples are actually going to be kind of code driven. And um, but that, that is a work in progress. I'm literally coding this weekend and probably next weekend to, to actually kind of finalize those up because the book isn't actually officially published until later in the year. So we've, we've kind of got the writing done, but the coding is, is still coming.
0: That's awesome. Cool. And, and I want to add to that as well, that I kind of know from, from working with you that even if you're not a Java developer, I definitely recommend picking it up and taking a read because the concepts regardless of the language are going to be solid and essential to anybody who's working with sort of modern cloud-based systems. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to picking yeah, that up and grabbing, grabbing a read. I might even pick up the, the early access on Safari this weekend. And, uh, yeah, I, awesome. I, I know what I'm getting for my Christmas gift.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Misha. <Michel>, that's it. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I'll get
0: you. Um, I'll download you the PDF, Misha.
1: <laughs>
0: Thanks, Nick. So just before we go, I have one last question for you and it's our most important question and our most, well, it's completely not serious at all. So <laughs> nice. if, if you were a programming language from history, so I'm, I'm I'm talking about like, you know, not something modern like Go or Rust or, or, or something like that. I'm thinking like something historic, you know, like Java or, or something. <laughs> what what would you Java. be and why?
1: Oh my God.
0: Oh, that's hard. Did,
1: that's. That's a genuinely hard question, yeah. But one thing, like, I really struggled actually during my PhD times was with, with Prolog. Don't know if you ever bumped into Prolog. Um, it's kind of you know Lisp derivative type thing. Um, so I, I think I'd be um, Prolog because like, I like to think I'm fairly like straightforward and simple on the outside, but kind of deep in the oh, inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that'd probably said a bit of a deep answer. But Prolog was one of those things like it looks so simple, but to actually understand it took a lot of time. I think that's generally how I roll. As I'm, I might appear quite, you know, understandable, but actually when you get to know me, you realize there's multiple levels, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Mishra?
2: Oh, man, like that's a, that's a really hard question. I, I think for me, I would say something that I was introduced to really early on when I started using Windows and um, I loved, ba- uh, you know, if you remember batch programs, like simple batch yeah. programs that you could write, right? Yeah. Like I think that was pretty elegant and like interesting to me because you could do a lot of hacking like a lot of different it was mostly like writing scripts and stuff right but like it was something that you could actually make a lot of use of and like actually make your life really easy on on windows and i i felt like that that to me was like resonated with me as a person like it was simple simple to learn Uh, you know you you see what you get basically and i think that's one of the things that i i feel like even today i look look towards like that's why i like go so much is that uh, you know, you you basically you're able to write things. Well, I'm not comparing bash program with Go, but just let let's just be clear. Let's just be clear. Like I'm just saying, like in terms of simplicity, we we just lost half our audience. <laughs> yeah,
0: Mishra compares bash to Go.
2: Oh my god! <laughs> I, I just I just feel like um you know bash programs were simple, and I think Go programs are pretty simple too when it comes to reading them. And I, I think that that to me is really important. topic.
0: Hot topic for the moment. What's your stance on generics? Oh my
2: god, I, I'm not going <laughs>
0: to. I'm not. I'm not. Nick,
2: what's your? What's here? Let's just move on. Let's,
0: let, let's not just lose the rest of the audience. <laughs> Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, um, and I hope our listeners really, really enjoyed this episode. Certainly one for uh, for the archives, just for the amount of knowledge that you've shared with us. So, thanks again. It's Been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks, Daniel. I uh, appreciate both of you for the invite. It's been been
1: amazing. Keep up the good work as I've been listening to the podcast and they've been really good fun. So I appreciate both of you taking your time to do this. It's been, been awesome. Thanks
2: so much. You've been listening to HashiCast with your host, Nick and Mishra. Today's guest has been Daniel Bryan from DataWire. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.